Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. episode of Spin This Podcast, a podcast where we talk about music and everything that happens in the music world. I am Sam Dow, and as always, I'm joined with my brother from another mother, Aiden. Yo. And joined for the first time ever, my brother from the same mother, Max Dow. Hi, everybody. I have listened to every single episode of this podcast, so I'm very excited to finally get to be a guest. Yeah, so Sick. we might have a slightly lower viewer or listenership this week because Max is like half of our audience. I will True. definitely be listening to myself on this episode as okay. soon as it drops. Fair Good. enough. So before we get into the actual episode, the first order of business, Max, what are your thoughts on the bridge? <laughs> I haven't seen it in a while. Oh. That... I, I, sh- I should have thought to rewatch it before I came on, but... It's more convenient than ever with... The URL spinthispodcast.com slash bridge. Yeah. So there's no excuse. We watch it like on a bi-weekly I... basis. We go over all the <laughs> all the details. <laughs> Every time we prep for an episode, yeah. we have to watch it. <laughs> Maybe next time next time I'm on this podcast, we'll we'll watch the bridge live on an episode or something. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. Commentary track. <laughs> so yeah, we are we are planning a commentary track for the bridge for the uh the ninth anniversary oh, we gotta of get in September. Aaron. We gotta get Aaron to come in. Yeah, and Beamish. Oh yeah. Well, we wanted to do a, a commentary track where me and Aiden just give facts about the film <laughs> as if we were the ones that made it, and just make up <laughs> bullshit facts about it. And we would show it yeah. to Mason and Beamish, and sh- and like show them all the production flaws that made the bridge <laughs> the quintessential here. cinematic experience. <laughs> yeah. With all the theories that justify those mistakes. Yeah. yeah. And we, we talk about how we set up things in the original to foreshadow the sequel. <laughs> well, we are also in the process of writing the sequel to The Bridge. It's in it's in production now. Well, I, I, it's in like pre-production. Pre-production. Yeah, it's, we're still writing it, I guess. So, yeah. I can't wait for that. Yeah. And uh, in our episode. previous last week episode, are you are you guys going to be able to sign Aaron to get to co- him to come back and star in the new? Well, movie? we're we're writing because he technically he maybe died at the end. It's a bit yeah. ambiguous if he okay. dies at the end of the bridge one. Depending on his availability, we'll cement <laughs> that in the sequel. The only character <laughs> yeah. that is necessary to come back is Thomas Grace, who is played by Beamish. So as long as Beamish yeah. is free, everybody else is secondary. Yeah. And the guy that played uh, Sanders, oh the yeah, French coat guy. Well, we could always I don't recast know what his him. Name is. Well, because the not to spoil too much of the plot, a little teaser of the plot. It involves an amount of time travel, so there's there's two Sanders in this timeline, <laughs> and one of them could be the OG Sanders, and then someone could play the younger Sanders, yeah. slightly younger. Yeah. And because he's kind of like a time lord, he can look different. Uh, when he's in the past, he doesn't have to look exactly the same. I I want to be in this movie. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Done. We've You're got so- a, few, a few parts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is my audition right now. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, it features. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much about the plot, but uh, I I won't I won't even spoil it. 
Shall, shall we start with something? Yeah. So uh, did you want to go into new, news and commentary? I realized before that um, I didn't actually prepare any news and commentary for this. Okay. Because I've got a news and commentary that I'm actually very interested in. And I know I talked about it with you, Aiden, yeah, briefly. briefly. Um, and Max will probably be hearing it for the first time. I found a YouTube video uh, last week. It came out a couple weeks ago. It was something like, is it possible to play music over the internet, like to collaborate musically over the internet? And uh, there's a lot of interesting information about it where they're talking about things like comparing uh, the lag of um, internet audio and then also comparing the lag of listening to music in real life. Like, say, if two people were on opposite ends of a stage, there'd be like a slight, like I think 30 millisecond delay was the most delay you could have in audio but still play in time with the other musicians. And they sort of theorized about if you had someone playing, uh, what's the, the maximum distance between two people, assuming that you can transmit over the internet at the speed of light. And it was like, they did an example where uh, you have someone in Hawaii and someone in New York. And they did a lot of cool breakdowns about uh, the math of how fast the audio would need to be transmitted between one place and another. But all this was kind of leading into the announcement of this piece of software, um, which is on musiciansTogetherapart.com, where the premise is it's essentially a program where you can jam with another musician essentially in real time or damn near close to real time. And the way it does it is there are, I think at this point, there's 11 different cities that have servers set up where people can uh, join a server that as long as they're within, I think, 500 miles of the server and the, all the other people jamming are also within 500 miles of that server and then they can play with each other in real time. Uh, and it seems, at least from what I've heard, the audio is, uh, I think on the website it said, like, comparable to, like, DVD quality audio. So, like, not anything. You're not getting any flack. Vlad would be disappointment. <laughs> uh, you, you would have a, a decent quality of audio where you can play with someone in real time. Wow. I looked into uh, the actual... I, I haven't tried the software. So this is entirely based on a video that I saw. I haven't tried the software. Uh, it costs $15 a month, though. And there's no free trial version, which I would be more inclined to want to try a free trial before signing up for something to, only to find out I don't have the internet bandwidth for it. Hmm. Uh, and I sent an email to the, the people, and a guy actually responded and said... Uh, that he agreed with everything I was saying, but it, it didn't seem realistic for them to give a free trial. Yeah, they probably don't have... Like, they're probably appealing to a pretty niche audience, right? So yeah. They're probably, and it yeah. costs money for them to be able to run the servers and shit. Yeah. So what but I'm I assuming... I think we should use it at some point. Yeah, we should give it a try at least. What I'm assuming... Like, at least for one month. Yeah. What, see, what I'm assuming they're doing is... Uh, you said that they actually set up shop in several different cities, right? And they have their own, like, data centers? Yep. Yeah, yeah, so what I'm assuming is or like... at least they rented servers from uh, a service in these cities, but yeah. Okay. Um, when you uh, like do like a video chat, for example, between two people, say over like mm -hmm. Google Hangouts, which is what we're doing, or like Zoom or something like that, it has to yeah. like hop through a whole bunch of different uh, like routers and like different yeah. like intermediary points, right? So I'm guessing what they're doing is that they're kind of like cutting out all the middlemen kind of yeah you're just essentially both connecting to the same server yeah directly from your thing not going through any uh additional shit 
Yeah, yeah. But on the website, it said that uh, I think the minimum upload speed you should have is seven megabits per second, <laughs> which I don't know what uh, the internet we have at uh, at our house, but it's not seven megabits upload. Like I don't, I've never heard of having an upload speed like that. Like uh, whatever our plan is, is one of the more sophisticated plans, I assume, of our internet provider. Like it's a decent download speed, uh, but it's um, never been anything close to seven megabits when I've done the speed tests. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. Uh, like that, that seems like a very specific kind of bandwidth where you'd have to also have a pretty high tier for something for an upload speed. Like I, I understand upload speed is important, but upload speed is kind of within its own requirements. Like not everyone needs a high upload speed. So it's not really a priority in a lot of internet packages. Yeah. I'm assuming like, because most people are not going to be like uploading a lot of shit. They're going to be downloading and streaming content as opposed to yeah. uploading things. But I don't know. I mean, yeah, it seems like it's going to be a pretty niche thing. At, at some point, you'll be able to go see a live band, and none of the band is actually there. Yeah, that's right? actually uh, where I, I think the software will probably be most beneficial, especially uh, with like, it coming out in the quarantine. I, I wouldn't even have to go to the venue. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that would be uh, ideal. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah. Concerts for introverts would be amazing. Yeah. And uh, uh, Ottawa and London are both within the radius of the toronto server okay so we could do this yeah we should do this and you mentioned that we should yeah. do this for the the retroactive love sessions yeah should we so i, I don't know <laughs> if we've ever mentioned that have we mentioned that in the podcast i don't know retroactive I, don't love. Know. I don't it doesn't sound that familiar i know you've probably mentioned yeah. it before so uh the idea was we would do like a mini series of podcasts where we're writing an album together and before it would because we couldn't jam in real time it'd be more throwing ideas back and forth but we're also recording that and then trying to make that into an actual thing but we could actually in theory if the software works and we have the requirements we could jam out some stuff and be able to do it that way you could form a band with a bunch of people that you've never met yeah, yeah that would be amazing yeah. well <laughs> i just had the idea of now but uh fucking um my doppelganger who is a SoundCloud musician lives in Toronto. So he could join into our server. You just join onto the server. Eventually it'll be, uh, I join as a guitarist. You join as a bass player, someone yeah. random from Beamish. somewhere <laughs> joins as a drummer. And it just like Omegle just matches you up with a band. Yeah. That'd be go. fucking sick. That that'd would be, be cool. Like a peripheral add on to it. Um, that was pretty much my entire news, and you said you didn't have any news. Uh, I, I wanted to comment on something, but I can't even remember what it is. And so I'm thinking, like, if it's something that I forgot that easily, is it even worth commenting on? <laughs> you know? Probably not. Yeah, you know, you're probably Do you have any not. news, Max? Can I do uh, my rebuttal? Yeah, okay. Aiden, <laughs> you got to listen up to this. Max has got some shit okay, go to ahead. lay down. All right, some, go some, ahead. some hotness to take. All right, okay. Dish it out. Well... I, I never expected to find myself in the position to defend Kanye, but I do kind of think he's awesome, okay? And I'm, I'm not going to vote for okay. him. And <laughs> I do agree that, like, at least 80% of his songs are total trash. So, like, anytime I hear one of his songs that has auto-tune in it, I skip that shit. Wait, hold on. Are you but defending have... Conde Kanye as an electoral candidate in the United States or as a musician or both? No. I, I, I'm saying don't write him off as a musician. Oh, okay. All right. 
Well, that's something I can probably make an appeal to. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So okay, like, continue. Okay. So when I was younger, obviously, I never listened to a bunch of rap yeah. because of all the douchebags that it was popular with. Um, but over the past few years, I'm like really getting into rap music, and it's 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 like an extension of rock and roll the way I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to be like technically proficient to be like awesome, and rap music in particular it's like the reason people love it is that it's like putting on a magical pair of glasses where you get to experience what it's like to be jay-z or snoop dogg and with kanye it's like he's he's uh you get to experience what it's like to be jesus yeah it's (laughs) like you get he, he he he's like a he's like he's a crazy asshole but he also raps about being a crazy asshole who says things like i am a god and and that's yeah. just fun to get to like experience that to a smooth beat, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being able to to walk a mile in in Jesus's Kanye sandals. Yeah, yeah. No, I just I I think it's fun. He's got a lot of pop influences, and I think that that shit's trash. But he has a lot of like industrial kind of influences that I also really really mm-hmm. fucking like. Yeah, all the stuff on Jesus, especially, and then like yeah, Jesus. Like I've been well. I've been. I've been on a Kanye kick in the last couple of weeks, and Yeezus is where it's at. I only know really of one Kanye song where he's like, well, I ain't saying she a gold digger. <laughs> yeah. And that one's great, too. That was a good one. And uh, I know the one where uh, Seth Rogen and James Franco did a spoof of the video. Yeah, so I should probably clarify how I feel about Kanye, and especially that rant. Uh, that was a very... <laughs> like off the cuff rant and it made me sound as if I was like going after Kanye fans and I actually uh, regret some of the wording that I used in that particular rant just because uh, I sounded kind of like I was sprigging out uh, about Kanye fans who would vote for him in the election and then that like kind of like segued into like my opinion about his music. Um, So um, in my view, uh, the lyrical content of his songs, you know, there's... uh, there's a lot of like self-parody a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of like, uh, you know, a lot of like self-reference. Uh, I, I don't want to mm-hmm. say self-deprecation. Uh, it's the opposite of that. It's like self-aggrandizing. And I have no problem with self-aggrandizing. I think a lot of hip hop artists do that. The problem that I see in Kanye is that when he tries to portray himself sincerely, I feel like it falls short a little bit because it's like when he tries to be sincere, he has to filter it through yeah. an egoist lens. And that's the kind of thing that just yeah. kind of makes me cringe a little bit. Uh, it, I know exactly. What, I, and I agree with you there. It's like when you listen to Ozzy Osbourne try to sing like for real. And it's like this, like he's got a rock voice and then he like tries to sing yeah. like a, a smooth uh, melody or something. And it's like, just please don't. Like, <laughs> do what you're good at. <laughs> do what you're good at, yeah. you know? Yeah, but I, I would say that uh, I would agree with you in that I think his uh, his songs can be fun to listen to, especially, uh, like, songs like Power off of My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. And like you said, Yeezus as well. Uh, and, oh, there's yeah. something else I probably should clarify. Uh, at some point in the rant, I mentioned that uh, he was probably uh, credited as a producer only nominally. Uh, after researching, mm-hmm. I, I am willing to redact that statement because, you know, he is a competent producer, uh, at least as far as like creating beats uh, goes. The range of influence that he mentioned, like you said, like the industrial stuff is uh, is yeah. really commendable. Unfortunately, uh, 
for me it's it's the it is like the more kind of like popular aspects of it that kind of make it a little uh you know less of an interesting yeah. listen and more of like you know this is something that is uh interesting it's well arranged it's palatable but yeah. it just doesn't like hit uh you know an interesting oh, yeah. note for me in the same and way that a lot of classic hip-hop would there there is a lot of bands that i like only 20 percent of their stuff and mm-hmm. the other 80 percent i i i I wish that they had. I wish yeah, that they had yeah. never recorded it, so that I could see them as pure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. But um, the other thing was that y- you were talking shit about about wordplay, and 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 I think that the I had a couple things to say about like the language and stuff, which was that basically with rock music, everything for some reason has to be like a vague metaphor that means whatever it is, whatever the listener interprets is the meaning of the song or whatever mm-hmm. bullshit. Uh, I like that rap music specifically says fuck you to that and they can be as explicit as they want and they're like the music might be simple but then they make up for it by infusing their lyrics with all these inventive rhyme schemes and humor and like self-referencing ego attitude and all this stuff um that yeah it is it is more than just wordplay and I I it, it, it it's a lot harder when you if, if you've ever tried to write lyrics mm-hmm. to write lyrics that are that intricate and then also make sense is it's insane some of that stuff i think yeah and that's mm-hmm. something that i can probably appreciate even if it doesn't uh it doesn't have like a effect on me emotionally in the same way that it would a lot of kanye fans i will concede that mm-hmm. with uh something like music i think when we make appeals to what makes music good or bad uh, we fall into the trap of trying to use objective terminology when a lot of what mm-hmm. makes uh, particular music good or bad to us is for like maybe sentimental reasons or for extremely personal reasons. And like mm-hmm. if I want, I just want to say that if anybody is a Kanye fan, like I, I don't care. Like uh, that's totally cool. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a, yeah, in yeah. a dismissive way. I mean that in like, that's cool. You can totally like Kanye. I've tried many, 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 many times to get into his music because I've been implored by people. But uh, the the and difference I think, between I think to do that, it, it takes a lot of skipping of songs. Mm, maybe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. He's That's, the best of album kind of guy. I'll, I'll stand up yeah. for him, but like honestly, eighty percent of his songs are trash. Yeah. yeah. And the wordplay is and clever. To... I can ap- appreciate it from a conceptual basis for sure. He'll like bend the way he's actually saying the words to make two words rhyme that wouldn't normally rhyme, and I, I like that stuff too. Mm-hmm. It, it 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 throws off your expectations. Yeah, I can appreciate that. In and also like not not dismissing uh, the the inadequacy of my own uh, critique of Kanye, but also uh, just trying to kind of frame my criticism. Uh, I I think maybe when I approach music it's more from like uh the lyrics uh, are just one uh vehicle that the the music uses i i actually don't often approach oh, yeah. music from a lyrical lens i almost more approach it from a, a compositional lens and so a lot of the yeah. times uh whereas a lot of people would approach it from the opposite uh i think um they're secondary to me uh kind of i prefer the vocalist almost to be a musician but i hip-hop is a kind of different domain where you kind of have to use the other side of your brain you kind of have to switch over to the the more analytical lens and that's something i can definitely 
uh, understand because the, the music is the music is almost nothing at all it's yeah. so minimalist and simple that the, the the lyrics are forced to be interesting otherwise the song sucks yeah true mm-hmm. true absolutely that's all I had to say about Kanye. <laughs> I, I'm definitely not voting for him, well, even if I could. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you could somehow uh, commit voter fraud, and uh, you can be yeah. with some of the zero I'm, point. I'm very. I hear there's going to be a lot of voter fraud. I'm yeah. very interested to hear the album that this running for president thing is secretly promoting. You know. Yeah. Actually, you know what? A lot of people the, the have, have Trump had similar theories track. that this this is some kind of uh, publicity stunt um, for some probably quarantine Donald yeah. Trump themed. Well, like it, even if it is, uh, if, if that is, I mean, it's probably the better option if it is just a publicity stunt and he's not seriously doing it, but it's also kind of, uh, at a time when people should be taking their election seriously, <laughs> the least responsible yeah. thing he could be doing. It, it, it is kind of a fun distraction. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I also don't think he's going to be able to run in most states. I think he's uh, he's off the ballot in yeah. South Carolina because he uh, failed to register on time. So I, he, I, he probably won't even... They can write him in. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. I guess you can write him in, right? Even if he's not like a, a so. registered, uh, registered with any political party. Maybe. I thought that he was with the birthday party. <laughs> the birthday party. That is a legitimate party, isn't it? Yeah. And they're lucky to have Kanye. Well, it's like, at that point, why not just like write in uh, like Ralph Nader or something like that? <laughs> write in Bernie. Yeah, you could. I might vote for Jay-Z. Or write in yeah. uh, uh, Taylor Swift. <laughs> write in Barack Obama. Or Fish Sticks. Yeah, yeah just out of spite. <laughs> Just write not Trump. Oh, well, they might get confused and think that that's a nickname for him yeah. and then say that's for him. Like, well, another one for so Trump, do I guess. Idiots. It's got his name all over it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, shall we proceed to uh, to debut our segment of debut albums? Yeah. I, I mean, talk about debut albums. So, uh, of debut albums... So the, the the first debut album that I wanted to use as an example is The Doors by The Doors. Uh, the Doors is one of my favorite bands, but I will I will lay down the claim that The Doors are the best band ever. And by band, I mean th- a, as a band. And by as a band, I mean each of those members is more essential to the group and to the sound and style of The Doors than any other band. Like Pink Floyd is probably my favorite band ever mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. they've had a rotating amount of people in the band of different eras like sid barrett was only there for one album and then roger waters leaves towards the end the doors yeah. uh and i think they did do an album after jim morrison died uh and it was uh i think uh uh robbie krieger was singing but it was kind of a trash album but they are each essential to the sound of the band and I'm going to go on a bit of a Doors tangent because I love the go Doors. So you got Jim Morrison with his iconic uh, vocal style, Ray Manzarek on the keyboards, which is probably the defining sound of the band in a lot of ways. Uh, you got Robbie Krieger on guitar. He's, he's got his almost uh, Spanish influence, also like uh, Middle Eastern influence guitar styles. You got uh, John Densmore on the drums where he's almost got like a latin or bossa nova vibe to his drumming patterns each of those members are so essential to the sound of the doors 
and each album by the doors uh excluding the ones where after jim morrison was dead has that that essence of those four dudes in it uh and this leads to one of the main things i wanted to talk about concerning debut albums are bands that they started right off the bat as a uh as who they were versus bands that then started in one place and went to a completely different place the doors i would say for the most part their style was consistent from the beginning to the end but yeah that's that's my my doors praise i agree with you and that's probably a a pretty noteworthy debut album like amongst all the editorials that i see that loud like the best debut albums of all time that one pretty consistently comes up so and that every pretty much every song on that album is a fucking joe fucking smash hit (laughs) yeah what what kind of songs are on the set list of the, or are on the track list of that one? Well, I know "Break On Through" is the first song on that album, which is a fucking tight ass song. You got fucking "Light My Fires" on there. Uh, mm-hmm. It ends with the end. I know that for sure. Appropriately, I don't know if "Love Me Two Times" is on there. There, uh, there is a lot it. of bands where, for whatever reason, their debut album is almost a greatest hits. Yeah, like like Pearl Jam was like that. Yeah, Pearl Jam was another one that. Uh, is worthy of discussion as Aiden is allegedly a fan. Um, Are you? Yeah, sort of. <laughs> he, he is now, he, he, he has admitted that he doesn't hate the sound of Eddie Vedder's voice anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've acclimated to it. Yeah. It's a, it's an acquired taste. <laughs> That's it's all I have to say. The first couple Eddie Vedder, uh, first couple Pearl Jam albums, he's just got like an aggressive voice. And then he like tries to like hone his like soft singing voice. And I never, I never really liked that. I would say that Pearl Jam is a, is another band that I would I would for the most part put into the category of they were Pearl Jam from the beginning and they they didn't drift too far away like similar with the Doors where they were always well that style they 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 did kind of settle down and evolve but they they were like a fully formed concept mm-hmm. at at their first album and kept go- kind of going from there. Yeah. And kind of expanded what that concept was. Like the the songs on 10, which I would also compare to like a best of album because pretty much every song on that album is yeah, that is, is their debut. their best. Yeah. Yeah. Pearl Jam never properly they're disbanded, probably... right? Are they they're still a band? Yeah. Okay, good. That's yeah, fine. they they, they never shows. stopped being a band. Yeah. Um but yeah, that's a hell of a debut album for the for Pearl Jam. I tried to like think of ones that are like across different uh, genres and whatnot. The one that comes to mind from like uh, the indie rock world is Arcade Fire's Funeral. It's probably one of the most commercially successful uh, indie rock releases. It came out in the early 2000s, I want to say 2003, I can't remember, but uh, or 2004, I think. As far as like indie rock goes, it was kind of relegated to his obscurity for a little while. Uh, Arcade Fire kind of like revived it in the early 2000s, and uh, we've kind of gotten a lot of like really bad imitators since. Uh, this is one instance where I think uh, as a counterpoint to The Doors and Pearl Jam, Arcade Fire very much went in a different uh, career trajectory over their mm-hmm. career because uh, they started with this album, which is distinctly indie rock, and then they've gone off and have done more like baroque pop type stuff, and then they went and did more uh, new wave and then disco, and now I I don't even know what the fuck they are, but uh, I mean they are still fundamentally an indie rock band, but I mean this album uh, as far as being a uh, a best of kind of 
compendium of all of their like essential stuff. Uh, this uh, this album and also a Neon Bible, which I believe came after this album, uh, are like Arcade Fire in their prime, and they've kind of veered off a little bit from that path. Although the individuals that comprise Arcade Fire uh, have uh, all gone off and done their own kind of projects, which have been of comparable quality. So that's a good thing. That's reassuring, at least. Uh, but this is one instance where I think the the debut album actually overshadows the rest of their discography. Whereas in a lot of uh-huh. cases, I think debuts can be very, uh, <laughs> you know, very formative, I guess you could say, to be, to be charitable. Some of them yeah. are just downright, like, awkward, right? Uh, this is one uh-huh. instance where I think they just, uh, they had a really big hit right out of the gate. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, just like one big, like, commercially successful indie rock album i i uh i like it um i don't actually personally own this record but i used to listen to the fuck out of it like way back in like 2012 but uh but yeah i just thought i might uh might talk about that yeah what are you typing? well uh uh, a a (laughs) debut album what's that i was saying what are you typing now are you slandering the good name of arcade no no (laughs) no i'm just shitting all over it okay cool for the audio record in our Google Doc, I'd like to write the word. I like to slip the word "poo" in there as often as possible. So now it's Arcade Poo's funeral. Um, so a debut album that I listened to uh, a couple days ago that I had never listened to before was the Beatles' debut album, uh, "Please Please Me." Oh yeah. Um, which I guess was a fairly commercially successful album. I only recognized a couple songs off of it, and I would definitely say the Beatles shifted greatly from that style obviously like there's a, a couple tracks on there that almost sound uh sort of doo-woppy so you're, you're saying the beatles were not fully formed yeah the beatles <laughs> they weren't like peak beatles yet they had a ways to go like the, didn't did did albums per se kind of really exist in the same way when they first started when the beatles started yeah did they did they have to invent the concept of the album in a well, way just been to have like, a de- debut album there would have been albums and stuff. Well, I know a lot of their stuff. I I know they had some like singles and stuff before that, but there's definitely uh, albums and shit before then. I think they had also been playing as a and... as their live band as well uh, for quite a while before yeah, they released. Yeah, no, that's their a good album. point. Yeah. Um, I know one of the uh, there's only maybe three or so songs that I recognized. Uh, one of them was it's the one that goes she's just seventeen if you know what I mean. I don't know what the song. Oh yeah, the rapey one. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and then uh, uh, Love Me Do is in there and uh, Twist and Shout. So those, those are the only three that I really particularly liked on the album. Yeah. The ones that I recognized. If I'm not mistaken, they come from a, uh, the mod tradition, which is like kind of adapting a lot of the uh, rhythm and blues uh, from the 50s into uh, a more rock and roll context, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's the terminology is mod. Uh, but I think right. before before that, I think duop was uh, a lot of was accessible to a lot of like uh, uh, I don't know. This is not going to be politically correct, but like whiter bands, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Whereas like yeah. rock and roll was still very much the uh, the realm of the black man before that. It, it kind of been adapted by uh, like you know groups from places like England, which uh, are primarily of uh, the the Anglo-Saxon ethnic group. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I don't want to say white people. White people. Just fuck it. I'll just the say white, white people. White, white people stole music. rock and roll. That's that is my hot take wrong. for the day. 
Yeah. I had a couple debut album kind yeah. of. Go for it. Um, one that I always thought was like the band's best work was like Cage the Elephant when that first mm. came out. There was like eight or nine really great listenable songs on that. And then they followed that up. They've probably got like seven or eight albums now. And it's just like something about youth that I think a lot of artists write all their best songs when they're younger. And as the years go on, and especially if the band breaks up and gets back together when they're 40, there's just, there's no, uh, there's no chemistry after a certain point. I don't know. I feel like a lot of bands kind of go that way especially bands that have more like irreverence to them and and they also get like very commercially popular like maybe that has something to do with Mm -hmm. it where they're writing songs for the everyman and then they get uh, a million dollars and they have lost touch with uh, the people they were that was their audience before i don't know Mm -hmm. my one of my old favorite albums was um apple by mother love bone yeah which was a debut album um but the singer died before that album even came out mm-hmm. um and that that band went on to become pearl jam uh but yeah. that that band how they were they were their own uh like fully formed sound with that album and uh if you think about the alternate history if that guy hadn't died pearl jam wouldn't have become a thing which mm-hmm. means that like theory of a dead man all these other bands might not have become popular and you would have had uh something that was more like evolving glam rock to take that through the 90s Hmm. instead of letting it die in the 80s the alternate history alternate history of music would be really interesting once we can get the uh the ai powerful enough to just listen to those songs yeah (laughs) Yeah. like they can uh evaluate all the songs and and adapt them for alternate histories but i i like the concept of a band like uh genre is 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 way too loose of a definition to help me find any music that i like i find that a good band is basically like its own genre. Like there's Primus and there's Pearl Jam. And that's like, you could write a song and produce it to be like basically a Pearl Jam song without being Pearl Jam because there's such a mm-hmm. defined way. And what's it called? Um, like a formula to write yeah. those songs, you know? Yeah. 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 Like back, like similar with the doors, like each of those sounds are so identifiable and distinct where if you can emulate that style you can make something that sounds very reminiscent of the doors it's, it's almost like back in the day you had genre and you could just be a, in a swing band and that yeah. is what you do mm-hmm. and then eventually uh there's so many options for how you can produce uh, a song that each band basically invents their own genre if they're good enough yeah yeah i i agree with max because there are a lot of uh bands especially when they start uh like you know apropos uh uh, debuts and stuff like that where uh they'll they'll write stuff that is uh you know of or typifies like a, a style that very much exists but as they go along they they very much uh start to place their own kind of distinct dna into their music and mm-hmm. uh, almost yeah. develop a, a style that is totally uh distinct and idiosyncratic to their sound and, and it kind of makes sense with recording technology that it goes that way because you can record something and hear it forever rather than just be you could before you could be a touring musician for 50 years and develop your own style slowly but once you start recording music everything starts to move way way faster and that's when genres started to become bands instead yeah mm-hmm. i think the beatles definitely did that with uh, sir george martin as well the beatles like uh, sir george martin was probably one of the 
the early proponents of using the studio as a as an instrument i uh, kind of i think uh uh mm. phil specter and uh all those other uh producers that uh came in the forefront of that uh were, were very much like not using the the recording studio just to capture a particular sound but also to uh, manipulate it and to add elements to it as well especially going back to the beatles and looking at how their work changed over time especially with the uh, influence of all the people that they surrounded themselves with from their debut all the way until when the band disbanded uh it's a marked difference for sure speaking of bands kind of defining the genre or inventing the genre uh pink floyd their debut album uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. So there, so that album is essentially an entirely different band compared to where Pink Floyd would eventually become, or even where they became several different times. Uh, obviously, with Sid Barrett uh, writing all the songs on that first album, uh, and then him not being a part of the band for the second album, it, it turns into an entirely different thing. And obviously, it, it their kind of origins as very psychedelic is definitely its most prominent in that first album. I mean, obviously that's a part of their style the whole way through, but they definitely, uh, in terms of songwriting, developed substantially as they progressed. And then eventually with Roger Waters not being in the band anymore, when you listen to the first Pink Floyd album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and compare it to The Division Bell, it's hard to believe that those are technically, technically the same band. Yeah, they have one of the slowest builds that I can think of yeah. mm-hmm. from what they started as to what they're known as. Yeah. Like, I, I, when I think of Pink Floyd, I'm thinking of the era where uh, they have essentially from more or less from metal until the wall. Uh, where See, I, you, I think of it as from, like, animals to the wall. Yeah. Like, uh, I've listened to metal a few times this past uh, couple yeah, of years. Metal is, is just about there, like, yeah. at that point. <laughs> like, yeah. when you listen have, to... They to, don't have, like, lyrics or anything on that album for the most part, right? Or do they? Uh, a few of the songs do. One, uh, The song Echoes is is largely instrumental. It does have lyrics in it, though. Um, where, uh, when I listen to that song especially, uh, Echoes, it's you can definitely see the ideas that would later turn into Shine On You Crazy Diamond or... Yeah. Uh, there's definitely some elements that I would recognize in Dark Side of the Moon. So I almost consider Metal the debut album of that of the the main Pink Floyd era. Yeah. Because that's where they develop that version of the sound. There's definitely some merit in having a slow build, too, mm-hmm. because for the fans that really love what they become, you can go back and listen to their earlier stuff and like see it forming in slow motion and be like, yeah. oh, that's that's almost like an animal song, but yeah. they weren't quite there yet. They were still learning. Yeah. Well, as someone who listened to all of Pink Floyd's music long after it was already made, knowing the bigger albums before I went to listen to metal, it almost feels like, like a prequel album where it's like, oh, like I can see where they're setting up this stuff <laughs> later on. Like, oh, yeah, that's, that's totally, uh, uh, they, they totally, uh, you know, are setting that up right there. But obviously it didn't go like that. I, another debut album I wanted to shout out was, uh, Talking Heads 77 album. Good one. So Talking Heads is another band where I think they definitely they they absolutely evolved quite a bit throughout their uh throughout their their history. And I know that they also kind of went a bit more commercial towards their later albums. I'm definitely more familiar with uh the first couple albums and then 
Um, was it Brian Eno that they collaborated with on a handful of albums? Maybe? Yeah, I think uh, Remain in Light and uh, I want to say Fear of Music as well. I know that yeah. I know that he co-produced uh, Remain in Light, I want to yeah, say. Yeah, because I think <laughs> that's definitely where I consider... Well, I, I really prefer the first two albums that they did where it's 77 and then more songs about buildings and food. Uh, and then when and they, they kind of build on some of those stuff when they did this. Uh, I know they did the Speaking in Tongues album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they have a couple of live albums that are as good as a studio album. And then uh, they obviously did the uh, Remain in Light and things like that. They did a few with Brian Eno, I think. Um, and then their later stuff I, d- I didn't really get into. Uh, uh, from what I've heard of just general discussion is that that was where they were more commercial of their career. Um, and that kind of didn't make me want to pursue listening to them. Like, I could listen to it and end up enjoying it, but uh, Talking Heads, I definitely appreciate their origins and then evolution from there. Yeah, um, definitely. Like, one of my favorite bands as well. Uh, Funny enough, 77 is probably the album I've listened to theirs the least. I mean, of the ones I have listened Mm. to. Uh, Funnily enough, I think I listened to... uh, Speaking in Tongues, that was one that came out kind mm-hmm. of in the early 80s, after what I would consider to be their prime. But I think uh, I remember right. actually enjoying that one quite a bit. I think it's after that yeah. that they uh, they started to do more of like a stylistic shift a little bit. Uh, I know that mm-hmm. uh, uh, True Stories is the album that I believe uh, was their most commercial, where they kind of like went for more of a, a poppier sound as opposed to... Uh, what they had previously done, which was adapt uh, things like funk and Afrobeat and all these other genres into their work. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's the same thing where it's like all of their great stuff is kind of clustered around the late 70s and early 80s. And everything after that kind of uh, is, a, is a lot like less uh, acclaimed and a lot less known. But I, I would still probably I, I want to give it like it's it's fair shake because it might be just be that... Uh, it was kind of reviled at the time for just not being as interesting as their late seventies, early eighties stuff. But you know, who knows mm-hmm. of another debut that I w- I'm, we've discussed it very briefly, Aiden, but uh, to have a full discussion, David Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. Cause David he had Bowie a, by David Bowie. he had a self-titled album. He had like five debuts <laughs> yeah. like, throughout his career. Yeah. yeah. Cause there was like well, Davy Jones and Laura third. I don't even know what that is. Like that was, I think his band, Davy Jones and the, I don't say the lower oh, third okay. or something like that. And then he had uh, David Bowie, the self-titled album, which was the first one I think came out in like the late sixties. And then there was the one that you mentioned, which is the one that had uh, space oddity on it. Yeah. So I'm looking at his, uh, his discography. The first album is a self-titled album, David Bowie. The second album is a self-titled album, <laughs> yeah, David Bowie. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which, and I think that's the one that has uh, Space Oddity on it, the second one. But uh, you said you listened to the the first debut album, um, or at least you're you you know you skimmed it or whatever. And yeah. I I also think I've listened to it at some point, but none of these are. Uh, I I wouldn't say it, this this may be controversial for my love of Bowie, but I wouldn't say any of these are necessarily a Joe Smash. It wasn't like a lightning in the bottle type thing where they just yeah. happened to produce like a great 
set of hits right out of the gate. I previously thought that uh, the album that had Space Oddity on it was the debut album, and then Space Oddity was this... Yeah. It's a second debut album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I thought that was the debut album, and, and that's... And what, regardless of what the other songs were, Space Oddity being this like iconic debut song, but it's on a second album, so it's not really that at all. It was kind of a, a second attempt. It's almost like he, he, he knew that the first one was just like a non-starter, so he's just like, I'm just going to totally go in a completely different direction yeah. because I ha- I've, I've tarnished my own name <laughs> right out of the gate. Yeah. Did anyone else have anything about debut albums where we proceed to... The next I had a few written section. down. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that there's another that I can comment on. Oh, yeah, there's a few more. Uh, one of them that I feel like is relevant right now is Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid, Mad City. Like, I was I was uh, trying to do uh, a few different albums across different genres. I guess I don't think uh, Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid, Mad City is, like, technically his debut because he, he released, I believe, a mixtape called Section 80 before that, uh, which was all, like, self-produced tunes. But... In my view, I think Good Kid, Mad City can be uh, an appeal can be made where one could say that that's his debut. And I think like for me personally, just because uh, that album was uh, was released just when I was starting to get into hip hop. uh, That's like still my favorite of his, even even after he released uh, To Pimp a Butterfly and Damn and all these other uh, records. Uh, I just love the uh, the combination of aesthetics that he uses, like the 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 different. the more modern kind of uh, processed like 808 sound as well as the the invocation of the kind of classic hip-hop and as far as like uh newer east coast hip-hop goes i think he's probably like uh one of the biggest names in hip-hop now i would say um he's he's been collaborating with a lot of people lately and uh yeah definitely one of my favorite like modern hip-hop uh artists your favorite debut album of of uh no i don't think this would necessarily be my favorite debut period the one you're talking about is actually his second album. Yeah, technically, That's yeah. Where I was going with it. He has Section 80 was a mixtape though. Wasn't that, that it says Section 80 is the debut album by American rapper Kendrick Lamar. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, uh, yeah. I take it back. But it was probably <laughs> he sucks. It was probably, <laughs> you take all of it back. Yeah, you you could say Good, Good Kid, Mad City is his probably major label debut. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's. Correct. I thought Section Eighty was a mixtape, so I'm not sure if it technically qualified. It, yeah, it might have been like an yeah. indie. Th- but I mean, it's it's. Uh, written as his debut yeah, studio yeah. album okay. but so it the might first, be yeah. the first the first album is on top dog and the one after that he signed a interscope which is universal okay yeah. well it, i i think i still think like section 80 is a good set of tunes but uh but you yeah, i don't have much to say as well. i, I haven't listened to the it. second the second debut <laughs> the second debut is a good theme within this did you guys have any more debuts you want to go for i think i'm good i i had nothing prepared in the first place so yeah <laughs> you're just off the cuff so should we go to the the feature segment? Yeah. The debut redo. Is it okay if I give a preamble before we listen to mine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you want yours to be first? Uh, sure. If you want. Uh, okay. So this is the preamble. Uh, I didn't want to revisit my older albums. I don't really like them very much. You didn't want to go home again. No, I don't. <laughs> I uh. So the thing is, like, I I've never been comfortable listening to my really old shit because. Uh, I, I can only like hear all of the the flaws like the both the obvious flaws and like the unobvious flaws whether from the the actual final product or from the production standpoint 
But in this case, I decided to uh, do this one again just because I figure it would be kind of challenging to rearrange this piece. As far as uh, modifications, other than the use of much better string libraries and a little more production know-how, I didn't change uh, a whole lot. Uh, the melody is the same. There is a different section that has a bit of a different chord progression in it. But all in all, it's, uh, I just tried to tap into what I was listening to and what I was inspired by at the time, which was way back in 2013, if I'm not mistaken, which was like a lot of... I thought of, it was 14. 2000, yeah, something like that. For, for me, that would probably be a lot of soundtrack music, some uh, Howard Shore and the Cinematic Orchestra and stuff like that. So I just try to think about uh, that kind of thing and try to tap into that same kind of uh, feeling. So yeah, go ahead. Well, I will, I will just quickly interject that I recall digging the Home album when it was released, and I think I've had it on my iPhone uh, music since I downloaded it from Bandcamp when it was released. So I, I, I like going back to your past catalog and enjoying some of those musics. It, I, I also find it very hard to listen to myself in the past, but it is, it is a sign that you've grown as a musician. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm all about my past music. But uh, that's like a very specific thing that doesn't seem to be with everyone. I kind of like your past music. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> so it's yeah. Just, yeah, it's called Home Revisited dot MP3. Sorry, it's not dot flack. <laughs> it's okay. We're not Vlad. We're not animals. I should also say that I'm not like a hundred percent satisfied with how it turned out. I like uh, I like most of it, but it just Wait, does I? seem like it needs a little more fleshing out. <laughs> it's not entirely finished just because I, I literally started and finished it yesterday. <laughs> yeah. I similarly, like, I could have done more with it, but didn't end up doing more. So I'm clicking yeah. play in three, two, one.
Do you have anything to say? Uh, so the original, I'm not sure if we want to do like an A-B comparison, but the uh, disadvantages I found with it were, were that it was kind of very mechanical sounding. Uh, there was, mm-hmm. it just sounded very MIDI. The other thing, like from a musical standpoint, it, it didn't change a lot in the uh, harmony and in the phrasing. And that's something that I wanted to do. There were a lot of parts where I decided that I wanted to kind of mark the the phrases by having a little more rubato, which is where it kind of like slows down and then it kind of starts up again. I wanted to have a transition to when there's a little more movement. So it kind of like speeds up a little bit by having a kind of like dip in the tempo a little bit. And then also uh, with Mm -hmm. the harmony, like there's a pretty obvious change in chordal structure. Like it mainly goes from just like a basic uh, ascending cadence in D major. In the second bit, there's a little more of like a satisfying resolution where I just put in like uh, the same thing except for with a B major chord at the very end. That's the only other modification Mm -hmm. that I made. So whenever, when I tried to change the, when I tried to adapt uh, the elements of the older one, it was that I wanted to take the, the the harmonic elements the melody and then kind of uh mimic the the movement of the piece in more broad strokes rather than uh just recon like redoing all of the same thing but with different midi instruments so that was the shtick Mm -hmm. of this new one yeah i'll say that uh i definitely uh having listened to it when it came out and over the years and also listening to a lot of your other stuff over the years uh you're composing abilities have definitely uh grown a lot so i definitely uh felt that it was more expressive i guess for lack of a better term like there was more dynamic elements to it if that makes sense yeah i, I don't know your original version of this song but i liked it i thought it was very cinematic i could picture like horses running through a field <laughs> or something yeah. like that running home yeah the old ones kind of sounded like a, a video game soundtrack, like a fucking Final Fantasy type thing. Oh, then that that's good. You upgraded from video game to movie. Yeah, yeah, it's true. The polygons of the horses are they're entirely fully different. Yeah, it's it's done at sixty four bit um, rendering now. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, the remaster. Uh, so should I go next? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So the uh, the track. Uh, I kind of did two tracks in one. So the context of this, so these albums I had written uh, back when I was in Waterloo, when Aiden, when you were my roommate. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these tracks were very limited in means of production. That was back when I was using GarageBand and I didn't know how to use the Command K keyboard. uh, And I was putting everything on a musical staff for MIDI instruments. And my only instruments that I physically had was uh, I had an acoustic guitar with a microphone and then an electric guitar so I didn't have a bass I didn't uh, really have any uh, knowledge about doing uh, percussion and things like that back then my musical production style was very a lot of things I did in a single take whereas now I'm very uh, picky and choosy about the stuff that I'm using I remember in a few of the tracks on my first two albums I can actually hear Aiden coughing in the background <laughs> uh, and it was during the first take and I'm like well that's part of it now that's that's part of the the sound so the track that I the two tracks that I did are uh, a track called glory evaded combined with the track woo woo so those two tracks are the last track on the first album and the first track on the second album 
back then my albums were nine songs long uh, and that was entirely because I would draw a picture with each song and then the album cover would be a, a three by three grid of the pictures so nine was why it worked out that way when those original songs were written they were probably written within like 12 hours of each other so they were essentially I consider an extension of the first album but this was kind of bridging the two tracks together a, a, a fun backstory behind the title glory evaded oh, uh, yeah out of curiosity you, you do remember the the origins of the title yeah, yeah? i was going to remind you in case you didn't explain yeah. the uh the origin no, yeah. of i i remember very well good uh, so the do it up. the premise behind the title glory evaded was when aiden and i shared a room uh when i came back from a shower in just a towel and i'm about to get changed and aiden is sitting on his bed a couple of meters away from me i would say uh uh avert your eyes unless you want to witness glory <laughs> and then he would look away and then i'd put on underpants uh and i'd say glory evaded <laughs> <laughs> so the song is a celebration of aiden not seeing my dick yeah basically okay, great so yeah uh we can uh give it a listen so I'm I'm clicking play on mine in three, two, one. Okay. Um, yeah, so the main difference really uh, between this and the original, I prefer the original version uh, of my songs, but uh, in this version I was able to use a bass and percussion. The percussion is actually reused from my Dead Roaches album from one of the tracks there because 
that was uh, actual recorded drums rather than uh, a MIDI drum. So, so, so I helped record those. So I, I helped with the song. No, no, this one. Oh, this uh, was different. This was uh, before that. So these ones uh, were me. So I remember rec- recording these drums because uh, I had like this little um, mini keyboard thing that you would use for like an Android box type thing. And I had that plugged into my computer so that I could click the R button on that remotely at the drum set because <laughs> I had my uh, my headphones with like an extension wire yeah. all the way to the computer. Uh, and then I would click R so that I could be sitting at the drum set to be able to record on the computer. That was easier than just like sliding it down by like eight bars and like clicking um, it and running? Yeah, it was. <laughs> 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 for whatever reason i did it the complicated way because i was constantly like restarting and false starting with my uh drumming because I'm, I'm a shit drummer so the the main bass line i remember writing that uh because uh when i uh, it was a synth instrument or midi instrument uh in the original version and i remember transposing those notes on a staff layout in garage band but i remember writing that on acoustic guitar because i was in a uh, an open D tuning, so I was, I was jamming around in open D a lot, and I came up with that weird little riff and uh, and made a weird chord that I only knew how to play in the open D tuning, but then I figured out the notes and then put them in for that line in the synth thing, but then I uh, was able to figure it out for bass and record the bass line this time. And uh, back then with my limitation of only having either acoustic guitar or electric guitar, uh, that's back when I would do a lot of that uh, kind of lead sliding wah guitar sound. So I, I tried to do that in this, which is kind of, it's, it's something that I hadn't, haven't really done properly in a while, so it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. But definitely in the earlier version, I was a lot less picky about my music, and this time I was a little too, more, too much of more of a perfectionist about it. Uh, so it wasn't exactly how I wanted it to be. Did your original have... It sounded like backwards recorded guitars. Yeah. Was so that the, in the original too? That was in the original. And I, uh, I haven't done backwards stuff in ages. so uh, I liked that touch. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you re-add Aiden coughing? No, he didn't <laughs> cough in this one. He coughed in... Uh, you, didn't, you didn't email him and say, hey, buddy, can you yeah. record a cough because <laughs> I need it? If I, if I uh, remake one of the ones where he was coughing in it, I will absolutely have him cough in it again. If you had, I would have uh, given you like the best cough that I could muster. <laughs> I, would, I would belt that cough. Like a moist cough. Yeah. yeah. Well, in, in one of the tracks, like, uh, I can hear people talking outside of our room. <laughs> and then uh, and, uh, and one of those you coughing. Another one, you're, you're doing kind of a, a clearing of throat. Uh, I know there's a couple tracks. There's one track where I I remember I came up with the riff and I wasn't recording at the time, but I was I clicked record, and I'm about to like lay it down because I didn't want to forget what the riff was. And I say to you, what should I call this one? And you're not even listening. You're like in the you have like a mouthful of food. You're like whoa, <laughs> you're like what should I call this one? You're like uh, you're like I said I don't know. And that's the title of the track. And I you're said, like I, I said I don't know. <laughs> yeah. This is I said I don't um, know. Yeah, uh, so yeah, that's pretty much the the uh, the spiel of that. So I, I did I combined a track from the second album with the first album because uh, I do consider that an extension of the debut album, uh, and I definitely think the second album I made had a lot of a darker tone to it. So it kind of uh, 
with the sort of slide guitar stuff, I kind of use that as the transitioning point to that that darker sound of the second track. But yeah, I prefer the original. I, I definitely I'm someone that goes back and listens to my older stuff a lot more. So uh, I'm more I appreciative of my my origins and the stuff I do now. I would say is generally much more different than the stuff I did back then. Yeah, I uh, yeah. When I was listening to this track, I I definitely got a lot of uh, Ronite Village vibes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fucking that small ass uh, two little cot rooms that they've got there. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I I, I dig it. I love uh, the transition, especially from the the more kind of discordant kind of first half. Uh, yeah. I, I remembered exactly which tracks that these were uh, because I didn't I, I mm-hmm. didn't refresh myself before going into this but uh, yeah. for both ones uh, I it immediately evoked the exact songs that you were uh, right yeah. trying to recreate uh, and because I think yeah. I had actually gone back through your discography somewhat recently and I mean like in the past mm-hmm. two months or so and had uh, combed yeah. through your your older stuff from the uh, Waterloo era and kind of everything after that from kind of 2013 mm-hmm. all the way until uh a little more recently but still not recently yeah you know what i'm saying because I, I think you were a lot more uh prolific back then because there's a lot because like you said a lot of your albums yeah. had like nine songs but you what you did is i think you would release an album you would record like several songs in a day and then you would like that would be your album and i always admired yeah how uh how prolific you were back then i I wish now uh especially that uh i could have uh, as much diligence because for me i feel like i'm more uh i get enraptured in one particular composition and then i can't uh and then i really want to write other stuff but i'm still i'm like trying to like configure all the bits of the whatever i'm working on at the present so it gets in the way i will add the disclaimer that when i made the first one and a half albums i was in the 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 midst of a mental breakdown so that was kind of why i did several tracks in a day and then halfway through the second album is when everything kind of blew up and then it was like like a month later that i resumed the second album yeah i remember Uh, and i definitely think when listening to the second album you can tell where the breakdown happened and then where it picked up several weeks later, which I kind of think is interesting in that way. Yeah. But that's why I kind of consider the first album and the first half of the second album to be the real debut album, like the first 15 songs or whatever. Yeah, it's funny because I remember you sending me these songs or, or showing me these songs after they were made. But me going back, I don't mm-hmm. remember the order of when they were made. So what I did was that when I went back... Uh, I started to remember the context upon which they were created. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's different, like, from you showing me those songs, like, at the time of their creation versus, like, listening to them all in one go. Like, I kind of, like, yeah. uh, uh, was trying to, like, remember the context upon which they were created, uh, especially in a lot of the uh, stuff that came after uh, your m- mental breakdown. I... Uh, I was like, I, you, you kind of perceive a different uh, musical shift, so you can kind of like go, oh, okay, that it's interesting how our uh, our kind of it, our music, uh, either w- whether we like it or not, kind of reflects our inner state uh, emotionally mm-hmm. or psychologically or whatever. You could probably call it an intermission. Yeah. In the album. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Max, will you? Uh, I I understand that you also have a prepared segment for the debut redo. 
Uh, yeah, so I covered a song from my old band Slug Bucket that Sam was in with our friend Brendan Beamish. Uh, uh, co-director, creator of The Bridge. Brendan yeah, yeah, Beamish. it has Thomas a... Grace. There is a bridge connection. <laughs> yeah. um, to the lore. So Beamish played drums uh, and Sam played bass on this original song, and it was recorded in my old bedroom basement. Um, it was recorded originally all live, um, vocals, bass, drums, and guitar all at the same time, and it was never fully fleshed out as a song. My style back then was a lot of improvising lyrics on the spot, and nowadays I'm a lot more meticulous with the lyrics that I use, so I rewrote a good chunk of the lyrics on these, and then I added another like double verse at the end of it with brand new lyrics, and... Um, I'm more inclined to put synths and stuff on a song um, uh, nowadays, so I kind of added that in, which was never part of the original song. I redid a lot of the guitars and kind of made that a little more fleshed out, and the result is um, a song that is a lot more of a song than than what I had uh, three or four years ago when I wrote this originally. So I, I have a guess of what song it is. Uh, so it was a song that we did in the earlier days where it was something like shooting broken arrows at God. Is it that one? No. Okay. No. The the only <laughs> other one I could think of was something like uh, Goat Stole My Swag. Uh, no. So the song that I chose uh, was called This One's For Scott. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it was um, just written about a guy that I worked with named Scott who liked my band's music. Mm -hmm. um, so I wrote a song about him and like most of what <laughs> happens in the lyrics of the song is just all completely made up it's just because he he expressed some interest in my music so I wrote yeah. this song that is a lot of references about the specific guy and if, if Scott is happening to listen uh, hey Scott I hope you're doing well <laughs> does uh, it still have the line uh, handstand Sam's after sweater cheddars uh, yes but but I did change it a little bit for okay. this podcast specifically so okay fair enough um, so yeah here we go I am pressing play in three. Hold on, I'm still loading. Three, okay. two, two, one, one go. Okay. What's so wrong to have a couple guilty pleasures? What's that sound? You know it's not the chili. Sweater chatter, blood scum is our only 
That was a Joe smash. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a Scott smash. <laughs> yeah, that that was a Scott smash. It was great Scott. I... <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the the Aiden and Sam shout out were after the sweater cheddars. Yeah, Aiden Aiden got referenced in the song. Nice. Yeah, I'm officially uh, I'm officially a member of the the slug bucket lore now. Yeah. <laughs> Along with uh, Jimmy and uh, uh, who else is in the slug bucket lore? And the and and the goat. The goat. Uh, I actually have a question: goat. Is is uh, slug bucket officially defunct, or is it is it just like uh, is it a, an on, ongoing thing? Technically, aren't we 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 rubber have a, animals? Yeah, we we kind of have a uh, new version of it with the same members plus uh, Nolan from our high school. Okay, um, yeah. and. We've been putting out Christmas songs every year as uh, nice. the rubber animals, but that's more of a spinoff project. Yeah. Um, I've been getting slowly back into writing more music for myself recently, and I'm trying to think of like a new artist name for myself because I'm writing different songs than I was with Slug Bucket. I haven't thought of that yet, so I'm still posting it on, on like Slug Bucket uh, SoundCloud when I mm-hmm. when I write new songs every so often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I noticed that your guys had a, a Slug Bucket SoundCloud account that uh, actually had a pretty uh, substantial following. So I uh, and yeah, I mean, every now and then I uh, whenever you guys had released a new song, I would I would listen to it. And then I checked out the Slug Bucket SoundCloud account recently and kind of went over them. And I think actually that song was one of the songs that I uh, revisited when I was going over this, the uh, SoundCloud account Uh <laughs> But uh, I, I don't remember I, 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 uh, precisely the, the differences between each arrangement, but I think uh, well, obviously the, the synth is a big one, yeah? And then obviously the, the fact that it was yeah. an, a, a live recording as well? Uh, yeah, it was a live recording, so it was like not the greatest quality. The lyrics weren't really finished. Uh, the guitar was very um, just like single note guitar with a bass line. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one that I worked on this week is... is is much much more of a production yeah i'm definitely uh uh you've sent me a few of your stuff that you've been working on over the past couple months and i'm definitely digging the current era of uh, of like heavy grungy uh synth rock stuff that you're doing i i i find that the uh rock music uh they really put themselves in a box rock musicians where um you're limited to what you can play live you're limited to the members in the band you're limited to what the members of the band can actually play you're even limited like if your band has a bass player in it and that bass player writes a bass line and he's going to be upset if that doesn't make it into the song like all these limits that um i i've tried i'm, I'm trying like writing things just by myself collaborating with myself and like building things up and writing songs that i could never write while i'm playing guitar and improvising mm-hmm. um and i like i find that rock music they they really don't use the full potential of what they could use in songs uh synth being a big thing where every time i hear synth in a song it's like the sissiest song i've ever heard <laughs> and uh there's very few songs that just have like a rocking synth part for some reason hmm. and uh yeah, I'm curious. Uh, I've actually heard you use the same effect on your vocals before. Uh, is it just do you just put like a high pass filter on it, or do you actually put like a do you have a specific effect that you use? Um, I'm I've started to kind of make presets for myself because I'm not the biggest fan of my own voice, but um, I will compress the living shit out of it, and um, 
I put like a high pass and a low pass filter, so I'm very like mid range. Okay. And um, sometimes I'll throw a little bit of amp distortion on it. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. And it's just um, yeah. So everything is very much the same volume, and uh, yeah, it has that yeah, effect like, pretty uh, much of coming through a speaker. I'd say. Yeah, that's usually what I'm trying to go for. Also, it hides like the little flaws in my voice, which, uh, and it also works for the style. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought it worked really well. Is that it? Is that our debut section? Are we? That's our debut section. All right. So did we want we want to do some Joe Pastor Smash? Yeah, let's do Joe Pastor Smash. This is actually a segment that I've been looking forward to. Okay. Well, I had a small, not anecdote, but lore to contribute. Ooh, lore. So uh, I think we've discussed this, Aiden, but it hasn't been podcast official. So since your guitar is the fake guitar of real Joe Pass, I've decided that my guitar is the real guitar of the fake Joe Smash. So yours is the Joe Pass guitar. It's a real, you're, you have a real guitar, but it's fake recreation of the real Joe Pass. I just imagine Joe Smash to be like the polar opposite of Joe Pass. He's like a tall, sexy uh, man with like a, a full head of hair. And he plays like does he arena even, rock. Does he even play guitar? <laughs> or does he play like uh, like the fiddle or like the clarinet or he something? Plays He's opposite. basically Bon Jovi. He plays the orchestra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's Joe Smash is is a virtuoso of of like uh, of in your face arena rock like the opposite of uh, yeah. solo jazz guitar. and I have his guitar yeah it's funny enough and it was really owned by the fake Joe Smash it's funny if your guitar looks very much like a, a jazz guitar like it it looks exactly well, guess, like Joe Smash's guitar because it is Joe Smash's guitar. True, but I mean, like I guess uh, I mean just a hollow body. Uh, I I feel like that's um, uh, a guitar make that typifies jazz guitar. But uh, I haven't yeah. uh, seen a lot of other makes used in jazz, at least not in a a typical jazz like uh, like trio or quartet setting. But uh, I guess you can play jazz mm-hmm. like jazz on whatever. You can play jazz on a Strat. Like nobody's gonna arrest you for it. Not yet. The jazz police will. Oh, have we said this on the podcast about jazz o'clock? Oh. Has that been part of the lore? <laughs> 251, 251 p.m.? Yeah. yeah. 2.51 p.m. every day is jazz o'clock because of the 251 yeah. court progression. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's a, it's a more, uh, uh, an in-joke version of, of uh, uh, four hours, 20 minutes, and 69 seconds, so. <laughs> it's the the jazz equivalent yeah. of 420 yeah hey dude yeah jazz two five one. yeah i'm definitely uh uh you've sent me a few of your stuff that you've been working on over the past couple months and i'm definitely digging the current era of uh, of like heavy grungy uh synth rock stuff that you're doing well, i i i find that the uh rock music uh they really put themselves in a box rock musicians where um you're limited to what you can play live you're limited to the members in the band you're limited to what the members of the band can actually play you're even limited like if your band has a bass player in it and that bass player writes a bass line and he's going to be upset if that doesn't make it into the song like all these limits that um i i've tried I'm, i'm trying like writing things just by myself collaborating with myself and like building things up and writing songs that I could never write while I'm playing guitar and improvising. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, I find that rock music, they they really don't use the full 
potential of what they could use in songs. Uh, synth being a big thing where every time I hear synth in a song, it's like the sissiest song I've ever heard. <laughs> and uh, there's very few songs that just have like a rocking synth part for some reason. Hmm. And uh, yeah. I'm curious. Uh, yeah, uh, like I remember... No, go for it. Amy. Okay. Uh, uh, I've actually heard you use the same effect on your vocals before. Uh, is it just, do you just put like a high pass filter on it or do you actually put like a, do you have a specific effect that you use? Um, I'm, I've started to kind of make presets for myself because I'm not the biggest fan of my own voice, but um, I will compress the living shit out of it. And um, I put like a high pass and a low pass filter. So I'm very like, mid-range okay and um sometimes i'll throw a little bit of amp distortion on it oh cool okay yeah. and it's just um yeah so everything is very much the same volume and uh yeah it has that yeah, effect like, pretty uh, much of coming through a speaker i'd say yeah that's usually what i'm trying to go for also it hides like the little flaws in my voice which uh and it also works for the style yeah yeah i, I thought it worked really well Is that it? Is that our debut section? Are we? That's our debut section. All right. And then so the uh, the uh, centerpiece. So how long have we been recording? Oh, how long? We've been recording. Yeah. Oops. I just opened. I got an hour and 32 minutes. Yeah. That's about what I have to. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. An hour. Uh, say that again. An hour, an hour 30. I got one hour 32. Yeah. Um. So did we want we want to do some Joe Pastor Smash? Yeah, let's do Joe Pastor Smash. This is actually a segment actually, that I'm I looking had, forward to. Okay, well I had a small, uh, not anecdote but lore to contribute. Ooh, lore. So uh, I think we've discussed this, Aiden, but it hasn't been podcast official. So since your guitar is the uh, fake guitar of real Joe Joe Pass, I've decided that my guitar, I. Uh, is the real guitar of the fake Joe Smash. So yours is the Joe Pass guitar. It's a real, you're, you have a real guitar, but it's fake recreation of the real Joe Pass. I just imagine Joe Mine. Smash to be like the polar opposite of Joe Pass. He's like a tall, sexy uh, man with like a, a full head of hair. And he plays like does he arena even, rock. Does he even play guitar? <laughs> Or does he play like, uh, like the fiddle or like the clarinet or he something? Plays, he's he basically Bon Jovi. He plays the orchestra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, Joe Smash is, is a virtuoso. Of, of like, uh, of in-your-face arena rock, like the opposite of uh, yeah. solo jazz guitar. And I have his guitar. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny enough. And it was really owned by the fake Joe Smash. It's funny. If your guitar looks very much like a, a jazz guitar... Like it, it looks exactly well, guess, like Joe Smash's guitar because it is Joe Smash's guitar. True. Well, I mean, like, I guess, uh, I mean, just a hollow body. Uh, I, I feel like that's um, uh, a guitar make that typifies jazz guitar. But uh, I haven't yeah. uh, seen a lot of other makes used in jazz, at least not in a, a typical jazz, like uh, like trio or quartet setting. But uh, I guess you can play jazz, mm -hmm. like jazz on whatever. You can play jazz on a Strat. Like nobody's going to arrest you for it. Not yet. The jazz police. Uh, so role. with our, our, yeah. Oh, have we said this on the podcast about jazz o'clock? 
Oh, has that been part of the lore? <laughs> two five one, two fifty one p.m. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> two fifty one p.m. every day is jazz o'clock because of the two five yeah. one chord progression. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's All a right. it's a more uh, uh, an in joke version of of uh, uh, four hours twenty minutes and sixty nine seconds. So. <laughs> it's the the jazz equivalent yeah. of 420 yeah hey dude yeah jazz two five one uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit it's it's two five zero everybody get their saxophones ready <laughs> yeah <laughs> someone count us in except you're not smoking weed you're smoking reefer yeah <laughs> The jazz cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> the old jazz seeks. Um, so for the Joe Pass, Joe Smash section, did you want to do yours? Sure. So I, I listened to a different song from the Taylor Swift album because I I forgot what one it was. I, li- I think the one I listened to was called Hope. That is a good one. Uh, yeah, so. I, I okay. <laughs> Go oh, ahead. you don't like it? Uh, I, so I, uh, so I, I don't know. I'll give you my overview of this uh album yeah. so far i believe i've listened to each track individually i didn't listen to it from start to finish although i don't think that was particularly meant to be enjoyed in in perfect numerical order uh i dig it overall as at least as far as taylor swift's uh discography goes uh, i think her last album was a bit of a train wreck it was kind of a stylistic disaster uh in that she was trying to invoke uh you know synth pop and like contemporary pop and it just uh sounded very awful in fact it didn't really sound like uh anything that could be placed within taylor swift's discography uh and it sounds like a not necessarily a backward progression but just a total lateral move for her this is a bit of a Hmm. i want i don't want to say a backward move but i feel like she's going back to a little more of a folk rock root kind of this one and i think the uh uh, the decision in this case to pr- uh, collaborate with Aaron Desner from uh, The National and also just a, a composer as well who's worked with a, a bunch of artists as well uh, was a good move. Um, the The song that I think is the most successful single from this album thus far is the song Cardigan. Uh, it's an okay song. Uh, I think the uh, the um, arrangement and the, uh, the vocal delivery is quite nice. There's another one... Uh, on this album called Exile, which features uh, Justin Vernon of Bonnie Vare, which is, uh, you know, it's okay. I, I don't think he delivers his like best vocal performance of all time, but uh, it's cool to see him doing something again that's a little more in his ballpark. The last few records that he's done, I haven't really fucked with. Uh, uh, the original Forema Forever Go, uh, as uh, going back to uh, debut albums, is a good... Uh, indie rock album it kind of has this mythology of being uh you know a, a nice like little self-produced album but anyway back to taylor swift um the uh uh the there's a distinct uh sound especially in these songs of uh having a a, a hook uh, especially on instruments like piano there's a lot of uh kind of smaller string arrangements it sounds like they're just uh written for a uh, quartet or something like that um, a lot of the songs have uh, just very kind of bare bones uh, drum machines, uh, very kind of minimal uh, beats to supplement the uh, the more forward mixed instruments. 
Uh, and I actually say overall, I do kind of, uh, I dig this album. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's something I would listen to just in general, but, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I think it's probably a, a, a good as far as pop goes. And I would give both, uh, uh, Cardigan, uh, and Exile to some extent, although to a lesser extent, a Joe, a Joe, uh, smash, smash, sorry, not pass. I get them confused sometimes. Okay. So I only listened to, you sent me one on Facebook. I think it was the Hope yeah. song. And I listened to that one. Um, I wasn't really about it. I'm not generally a fan of uh, Taylor Swift. I haven't listened to too much of her stuff. But uh, I didn't think it was anything too extraordinary. It is a Joe Pass for me. Like, I, I can hmm. see where Taylor Swift fans would enjoy it. But uh, compared to the other pick for Joe Pass, Joe Smash, the Billie Eilish song, I like, I've listened to the Billie Eilish track a handful of times yeah uh in the past couple of days whereas the taylor swift one that i heard it didn't really make me want to listen to any more taylor swift yeah um so uh i'm not sure uh if i would re- i think uh the, the thing that i really liked about hoax in particular was the uh i mean obviously a lot of these tracks are very they're mostly almost like an indie kind of folk aesthetic going on. I like the use of the piano hook and also the uh, the kind of sparse arrangements. But what I like about this one in particular, uh, as far as it being a Taylor Swift album, is that she's not as, uh, I don't want to say, I, I guess ornamental in her vocals. Uh, this one, I feel like the whole album she sings in mostly like a more of her contralto range and she's a little more consistent in dynamic range except uh, with the exception of like the uh, cardigan where she kind of uh, varies her vocal dynamics a little bit but i like how this album is almost more of like a whispery uh like personal kind of album but anyway yeah uh if you uh, do you want to give a little a preamble of the uh, billy eilish track i think you sent me this one a few days ago yeah uh, and I've listened to yeah, it. Yeah, so I, I'll say right now it's a Joe Smash, and I don't think I've actually given a Joe Smash in the uh, since the genesis of Joe Smash. Yeah. The last one you gave a, a Joe Smash to was Blinding Lights, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But that, I think that was episode one before it was defined as Joe Smash. Yeah, it was Bangers and Stinkers. Uh, so this might be my first official smash of Joe Smash. But yeah, so uh, this song, it came out a couple days ago. It's called My Future by Billie Eilish. So I've not really listened to much Billie Eilish, uh, with the exception of a few songs, mostly ones that you've sent me. Um, And this song, unlike the Taylor Swift one, it made me want to go listen to more Billie Eilish music, which I may actually do. Mm -hmm. So this one was, it starts off kind of a more soft song where it's uh, a couple instruments uh, uh, with her vocals. And then at one point in the song, it fucking kicks in with like a, a, a beat and, uh, and, and some good rhythms there. And it fucking, it's, it Joe slaps at that point. And the, the, uh, I watched the video as well. I originally watched the video when I uh, listened to the song. And it's like this really neat, almost uh, kind of a, a soft anime style. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know if anime is really the right term for yeah, it. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's kind of that almost Japanese, not like over-the-top anime, but like that kind of uh, artistic style to it. I think it's supposed to be um, uh, kind of a homage Like the to... lo-fi uh, that you would see on when people have a lo-fi song where it's got that vaguely anime loop animation. Yeah, it's, you know what I'm talking it's supposed about? to be a homage to uh, um, the Studio Ghibli style, which is like... Uh, Hayao Miyazaki, yeah. like all the bigger, like you know, Spirited Away and all those, uh, all those films. Yeah. Well, I definitely thought that 
this song felt like it was about something, whereas the Taylor Swift one felt like I don't know. I felt like I, I was listening too much to the rhymes of Taylor Swift, which I didn't particularly think were well written or clever or anything like that. Whereas the Billie Eilish song felt like it was it was about her future, like she was. Uh, it was kind of you know uh, I guess hopefulness or almost bittersweet hopefulness about the future. Mm-hmm. But then also the music composition was really well done. I really liked it when uh, it kicked into full gear halfway through the song. And I've listened to it a handful of times, and I'll probably listen to it a handful more. Yeah, this is one instance of a, of a song where I liked it so much where I actually tried to uh, kind of transcribe the chords a little bit. And it was actually, I mean, with most songs, you can, you can hear them very distinctly. But in this one, there's like a, a Rhodes keyboard in the first little half. I think mostly the first little half is Rhodes keyboard. There's a little bit of a synth pad going on. Uh, and I think uh, it's interesting. There's, there's not a chord progression you typically hear a lot because there's a lot of like chromatic movement as opposed to like just standard like one, four, five, one, like your typical hmm. diatonic movement. So that was kind of really interesting to hear as well. Um, I, I like the, the, there's like two halves of this. Like there's the second half, like you said, with the beat. It almost has almost like a 90s kind of like a breakbeat type feel, which is really interesting. Um, I think it almost would have been sa- sounded a little cooler if they had if they had made like a down tempo track. But I don't know. I, I, either way, I, f- I think that they uh, it was cool. Um, I think this track, just like all of her other ones, were co-written and co- co-produced with her brother, uh, Phineas O'Connell. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think... Um, uh, like from I, he's been like uh, co-producing and co-writing all of her songs thus far, especially the. Uh, yeah. Um, oh yeah, I think all of them like unanimously, uh, yeah. and uh, this one I think uh, probably one of my favorite songs that she's released thus far. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I would still say that uh, uh, everything I wanted is my like number one favorite, but this is probably like number two. <laughs> I'd put it as number one yeah. for me of her current discography. Yeah. I, I, I would love to see her kind of moving in this kind of traject- trajectory of going for more of like a, uh, almost like a, a soul or R&B kind of aesthetic, but with more kind of uh, mm-hmm. modern sound and instrumentation as well. Yeah. Uh, shall we do some Get Wrecked Nerd? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get Wrecked Nerd. Yeah. We'll put in the little bit there. So, yeah. So this is the, the recurring segment where we recommend albums to each other. Uh, if Max has a recommendation to, to share, he can also do that. Um, uh, I'll throw mine out there first. So uh, I wanted to do something in the theme of debut albums, but also something that neither of you are particularly familiar with, or at least not overly familiar with. So the album I'm, I'm recommending is New Boots and Panties by Ian Jury. I probably mentioned Ian Jury to both you guys a large amount of times over the years uh and you may have heard some of his stuff uh to an extent but i wanted to mention this because this, it is his debut album he had an album before with a band that he was in but this was uh his first album without the blockheads so this this one is technically so he had a band that he was in before something like kilburn oh, okay. and the high roads which i don't think he was even the lead singer of or he if he was it sounds nothing like his other stuff 
So New Boots and Panties is technically the first one of what would later become Ian Jury and the Blockheads. It's not credited as Ian Jury and the Blockheads, but I don't think they had officially decided they were the Blockheads yet. So it's technically a, a solo album, but it's actually a Blockheads album as well. I would say that this is probably, it's, it also fits in with the uh, our discussion on debut albums where uh, it's essentially a best of album where it's probably has uh, all of the best of his songs. The most famous one probably being Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Yeah. There's a, a, a personal favorite song, uh, Clever Trevor. Does it have um, Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick? That's not on this one. Oh. I think that one might just be a single. I don't know if it's actually on a particular album. Uh, I was going to say, that there's a song called What a Waste, which is on my version of the album on vinyl, but I can never find it on the Wikipedia page. Like, maybe it was the Canada release or something that had that song, but that song's on it. Sweet Jean Vincent, Wake Up and Make Love to Me. Uh, I'm Partial to Your Abracadabra. Uh, my Old Man is probably one of my favorite songs that's on this. Billericky Dicky. I was going to do the impression of it, but just listen to the song Bill Ricky Dicky and uh, uh, you'll know what I mean. So this one, it's very kind of, uh, it's definitely got like funk and disco elements to it. And Ian Jury is, uh, a, has a very thick English accent, like a very Essex is where he's from. He says that in the Bill Ricky Dicky song. So it's very kind of, I guess, like working class based on uh, the little I know about what his life in England would have been like. The, this came in the late 70s. They aren't kind of like other bands of the late 70s from, from that. You're, uh, you're saying he's not like Elton John? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. I couldn't have put it better myself. He's <laughs> British, but in the non-Elton John kind of Yeah, way. like in that sort of, uh, there was obviously the whole British invasion of music where a lot of uh, rock bands were coming out. Uh, I wouldn't say his stuff is more the mainstream stuff you would hear it, it like almost borders on like punk music in a way yeah i would say it's more punk music are you saying he doesn't um, sound like freddie mercury <laughs> that's exactly what we're saying uh so i uh, and i love uh all of his music um some albums uh not every song is is amazing but uh this album in particular every song i would say is amazing but yeah, uh, uh, if you're kind of into some some more edgier, I guess, British uh, uh, punk funk music, then this is the, <laughs> the album for you. Yeah, I'm going to check this one out. Uh, I think I've listened to all of your recommendations thus far. I think the only one I haven't listened mm-hmm. to is, the, is uh, Sid Barrett's self-titled album. I still have to get around to listening to that. But I did listen to Madcap Laughs uh, a few weeks ago, okay. I think. So I'm, I'm going to check yeah. out this one because uh, this one uh, I do recognize. I'm just browsing through the Wikipedia page and I recognize some mm-hmm. of the individual songs, obviously Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Uh, Clever Trevor, I've definitely listened to before. Um, I don't think I, at mm-hmm. least I don't recognize the uh, the songs by the t- the other songs by the title, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I might have listened to them before. But uh, anyway, yeah, I'm definitely going to give this one a go. Did Max want to to wreck us nerds? Uh, yeah, I do have a recommend. I, I do have a recommendation for y'all nerds. Go for it. Yeah. The artist uh, is uh, Kate Tempest. She's also British, uh, but she's a modern rapper poet. So not Elton John. Definitely, it's a whole other way to not be Elton John. Okay. Her album uh, is called "Let Them Eat Chaos." 
and I recommend it for both of you cool. guys. Uh, it's it's rap music. It's very like synth heavy, but it's it's not anything like any other rap I've ever heard. It's very very much like poetic and um, cinematic, like description uh, of like real everyday life kind of stuff. And the album, you have to listen to it all the way through from beginning to end. And it's it's definitely a concept album. Um, she basically has these seven characters. Um, and each song is about like the point of view of one of these different characters and they're all kind of living on the same street and they're all awake at the same time in the middle of the night and it's kind of exploring why each person happens to be awake on that night and then uh, the storm comes in and there's a song from the perspective of the storm and basically it kind of concludes with all these people kind of coming together in a in a weird moment but yeah the lyrics are just so so intense and the, the synths Almost reminds me of like Pink Floyd at certain moments, but uh, yeah, you got to listen to it. This looks so cool. Yeah, I'll definitely listen to that. What? Oh, I just said this looks so cool. I'm just like looking, uh, like reading about it right now. Mm-hmm. About the album? Yeah. yeah. Listen to the whole album. Um, anyone who isn't going to listen to the whole album, listen to the track Europe is Lost, and that'll probably make you want to listen to the whole album. It's very intense. Sick. I will definitely listen to this album. All right. Aiden. Yes. All righty. So um, the Reckoning. Uh, I know that, um, Sam, you had been experimenting a little bit with Bossa Nova on your uh, songs. Uh, I know that you had done like a pseudo Bossa Nova track, but uh, for this segment, I didn't want to recommend a Bossa Nova album. Just like uh, couldn't think of one that I would like use as the the introductory introductory album for Bossa Nova music. So I just decided to recommend a completely different album entirely. And also because I think this album is just like so great and... uh, uh, it kind of like Joe passed from my mind a little bit just because I didn't have a like a downloaded copy of it. And it's so hard mm-hmm. to get it to actually find a, a version of this album. It's by the composer and arranger Klaus Ogerman, and it's called The Gate of Dreams. Klaus Ogerman, uh, if you're not familiar, is, like I said, a composer, arranger, conductor as well. He'd worked with uh, several different artists, namely... Uh, Frank Sinatra. He also worked with Antonio Carlos Jobim, who is the bossa nova singer and songwriter. Uh, he's worked with, I think, Diana Krall as well. And uh, I know that he had worked with several jazz musicians as well, like uh, Bill Evans. Um, he uh, hmm. r- mainly writes uh, orchestral music, but he also employs several musicians to improvise. Uh, another collaborator that he has had frequently is the saxophonist uh, Michael Brecker. I think that the album that most people know of Klaus Ogerman is uh, Cityscape, which actually uh, features mm. Michael Brecker, who is a saxophonist. Uh, but in this case... Yeah, on his Wikipedia page, that's the only uh, one that has a Wikipedia page. Yeah, yeah. All the other ones don't have links to anything except for Cityscape. Yeah, so Gate of Dreams, this album, uh, I don't really know how I would classify it necessarily. There are... Uh, several movements within these tracks that are they're more so like arranged for orchestra and then they're they're they would segue into like more of a contemporary like jazz or uh, i would say almost like a funk type setting uh especially in the first track uh, time past autumn uh it begins with a very kind of third streamy type jazz and classical mix and then it segues into more of like a very upbeat like modern jazz setting i'm not sure how i would necessarily categorize it Uh, anyway it's like uh it's written by klaus orgerman but uh there are sections that are composed there are sections that are uh primarily improvised um 
uh, a lot of it is uh, orchestral, but uh, there are um, many instrumentalists employed on this album. There are uh, uh, guitarists and, uh, and drummers as well, and obviously your, your standard jazz fare. Uh, it feels very much like a jazz album, but um, the, the term that kind of, kind of comes up a lot in order to describe music like this is third stream, which vaguely uh, uh, describes music where uh, there's a combination of classical and jazz to some extent. Uh, I think uh, albums like Let My Children Hear Music by Charles Mingus is technically ca categorized as third stream, but I've also seen like Moondog music kind of categorized as third stream. Uh, so it's a very kind of vague way of describing uh, a lot of different music. But if you can kind of picture the instrumentation, uh, the orchestral arrangements that would typically appear in a like a Sinatra song, or if you've ever listened to uh, like some of the more well-known bossa nova albums that Tom Yobim has done, uh, those they very much like evoke that uh, kind of aesthetic. But there are also a lot of moments that are primarily just improvised where the orchestra acts as more of like a supporting uh, device rather than the actual foreground, I guess you could say. So uh, it's called hmm. Gate of Dreams. I think it came out in 1980 something or 1982. Or 82. Oh, oh, 88 looks like. So uh, Gate of Dreams. 77 oh, 77 okay yeah so it must be the that this was i don't remastered. know why i guessed 82 but yeah it's 1977 77. for some reason i thought it came out in 88 but i guess that might have just been a remaster uh yeah it's uh, it was really hard to uh come across like a recording of this one i find it like nobody was selling it hmm. uh and there was the only um version i could find that you could buy was on amazon but it was on the amazon american store and for some reason if you don't have a like a, yeah. an American Amazon account, you can't actually buy music off of it. You have to stream it. And so I actually managed to just like download it on some website. I didn't try torrenting it, but I'm sure that would work as well. <laughs> anyway, that's that. Uh, so I've just got a quick SoundCloud shout out. So the song is called A Free Trip to the Moon by the artist Clint Music. So this song, uh, I think it is is a description of his uh, account. It says uh, Pink Floyd is an influence to him. And I definitely hear it in this one. So it has a, uh, a couple instances where uh, it's almost like it has that found audio uh, interspliced into music where uh, uh, it's kind of like a, a voiceover, uh, something about the moon and things like that. Uh, so it definitely yeah, it gave me the Pink Floyd vibes there. And then um, the main instrumental part kind of reminded me of something that would be on Dark Side of the Moon, like like on the run kind of track where it's very uh, synth uh, heavy and rhythmic. Uh, and then it kind of went to a, a, a softer thing where it was more of a, a, a where, where he's more singing the song with a, a instrumental accompaniment, something that would remind me of, of like on the uh, Wish You Were Here album. So uh, it's definitely, uh, uh, I'm definitely going to listen to more of this guy's stuff, but uh, he's definitely got a, an interesting uh, method to composing and creating his music. And yeah, so uh, once again, that's A Free Trip to the Moon by Clint Music. Cool. Uh, I'm just going to do mine really quick. I don't have a whole lot to say because I haven't really delved deeply into this one. I didn't really have a SoundCloud shout-out prepared, but uh, this mine might mm. not appeal to absolutely everybody. Uh, it's a bit of an oddball, but uh, I, this one is a, uh, a composer named Christina Volpini, who I believe uh, is a Canadian composer of uh, kind of contemporary uh, classical music, I guess you could say. Uh, a lot of it, though, is very 
experimental and very kind of like process driven. Uh, the one that I really like is uh, a song called For Emily, which is named after the guitarist that plays. Uh, it's uh, written for guitar and also resonating jar as well. So it's like, you know, basically a jar that resonates like when you play at its like natural resonance frequency. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of cool because like you have just like a basic, uh, you know, instrumental foreground, but then the, the resonating jar kind of acts as a, a cool kind of drone to supplement it. It's really uh, kind of interesting. Hmm. Uh, I don't think that, like I said, that this would necessarily appeal to everybody, but I really like exploring kind of weird and, uh, uh, you know, strange, like, you know, process driven music. So uh, if you ever are in the mood to uh, check something like that out, then I would recommend uh, Christina Volpini. She has a, a kind of a small uh, SoundCloud account, but I think uh, her stuff is kind of like a little more, uh, you know, appreciated in academic settings. Uh, but, uh, you know, which is, which is totally cool. Uh, I, I personally like uh, just listening to a lot of her music and just kind of like, uh, wondering how it's kind of made. Um, but yeah, uh, that's that's my SoundCloud shout out for this segment. Nice. All right. So we're just about to the end. Uh, uh, Max, do you have anything to plug? Any upcoming releases of SoundCloud or music or any other projects you have on the go? You can find my artwork on Etsy at uh, www.woodenflipbook.com. And if you enter the promo code spin this, you can get 15% anything in our shop. Nice. Sick. Yes. We're a promo code. I yes. have to. And we sell, we sell flip books, greeting cards, coloring books, and digital downloads. Yeah. Nice. So I like Max's get artwork as well. Early Christmas presents. Thank you. I, I give it a Joe Smash. If that. Uh, yeah. That nice. applies to all art. <laughs> you can smash any art. Yeah. You can smash anything. Anything. Any object. So we're just about done? Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Spin This Podcast, a podcast where we talk about music and, and everything in the spinning in the music world. I've been Sam Dow. And I'm Ian Clare. And I'm Max Dow. Thanks for spinning with us. And yeah. you have spun your last spin this week. Until next week. Yeah. Screaming at the payphones and unraveling publicly There could be a line about how everyone's a hypocrite And everyone's sort of just struggling helplessly, yeah Struggling helplessly, yeah He said you should write a song about the infinite universe Vibrations and frequencies